Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit podcast. I'm Chris Alfalt, the editor of The Toolkit. My guest today is writer-director David Lowry, uh, David's Ain't Them Body Saints, uh, huge success at the 2013 Sundance Film Festival, followed that up with Disney's Pete's Dragon last summer. And then David, right, like, my understanding is like three days after you finished, you, you put Pete's to bed, you start shooting a ghost story, right? Yeah, it was two or three days. <laughs> if, like enough time to fly to Texas and start. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the uh, ghost story uh, premiered at Sundance this year. Mm -hmm. uh, it's safe to say the, the most loved film out of the festival. And then A24 is going to put it out in theaters on uh, July 7th. And my sense is, in, in reading a little bit about it, is that it wasn't necessarily an accident. You know, sometimes you have projects bumped up against each other, but my understanding is, is that there was almost a, a, a design of putting Pete's to bed and moving on to a very different project and, and kind of sinking yourself right into this. Is that, is that the case? Yeah, I definitely, you know, I planned that first day of principal photography around the last day of uh, post-production on Pete's Dragon, not because I wanted to you know, make a statement about going back to making independent films again, but because that was the first opportunity I had to go do it. And I wanted to jump into this movie as quickly as possible. And, you know, I knew Pete's Dragon was going to open on August 12th, and we finished, you know, finished the sound mix on the DI on June 10th, and the window in between was the time I had to make a new movie. And so I, I jumped on it. And I knew going into it that that was that window, and so everything was sort of geared up to begin as quickly as possible once we had that that sudden window of freedom. You've, I, my understanding is also you and one of your producers, and I think maybe one other financer, you finance this yourself, a very low budget, yeah, and very consciously, right? Yeah, it is part of this, and you know. I read something. I think it might have been with David Ehrlich, um, who did a great profile of you back at Sundance. There was a almost a hesitancy of you not sure if you had a movie and you and like there's an element here of if you needed to you guys could bury this this was inexpensive enough not that you know money grows on trees but that you could if this ended up being something it turned out great but that if it was an embarrassment if it wasn't a complete picture that financing it yourself was almost this freedom or this permission to to do something as bold as this movie is that absolutely I, I didn't want to ask anybody else to shoulder the weight of something as strange and unusual and potentially terrible as this movie could have been. And, and it just, you know, it allowed us to, ha to operate with a degree of freedom that we had always wanted to have. And so by financing it ourselves and also not telling anyone that we were making it, we were able to give ourselves a safety net of failure. And indeed, I, was completely unsure every single day if this was going to work as a movie. I was terrified every morning and every night after shooting <laughs> that we were just failing miserably. And I was ready to bury it if it needed to be buried. I didn't want it to be a, a besmirchment on anyone's resumes. And everyone went into the, into the project knowing that. Everyone understood the risks and everyone knew that, you know, 
if, if we didn't work out, that would be okay. You know, this wasn't going to be a movie where we forced it out in the world in a unfinished or half-realized state, that we would either finish it to its fullest potential or let it quietly recede into the memory of those who partook in it and then fade from existence altogether. And watching it again, one thing that I'm reminded of, and I've been thinking about it a lot watching some of my favorite films again, and some of the films that I find most profound, and some of those filmmakers who I watch over and over again, there's an element of some of their best movies that I find the most profound that are incredibly simple. Of course the filmmaking's not simple, of course what they're saying is not yeah. simple. But there's almost this like confidence that they have that, because your idea here, I mean, it could be, you know, Casey Affleck with a she mm -hmm. being a ghost, there could be something silly or embarrassingly simple about that. There is. I, I strive for simplicity in everything I do, and, and finding it is harder than you would think. You would think that just setting a camera in the corner of a room and, and recording something mundane would be the easiest thing in the world, and it's actually not, because filmmaking is such an inherently complex endeavor that it's just always far too easy to overcomplicate things. And, and I, as a director, often overcomplicate things by thinking, by, by underestimating myself and underestimating my audience and thinking that the simplest shot actually might need a dolly to push in on something to keep people interested in it, when in fact that's not the case. So you, you do have to just, I don't know, like finding that simplicity is very, very, it's a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. It's also a little risky, right? Because it's always easier to add a layer or to make it more complex or to, to get busier, yeah, to, get busier, to, to, right? to trick people into thinking there's more going on than there is, and and that's easy and fun to do, and sometimes that's appropriate for the movie. But in this movie, particularly, particularly, we knew that it was going to be very, you know, there's not a lot going on. It's a relatively dense movie in terms of themes and subject matter, but at the same time, there's a lot of space in it. Mm. And that simplicity had to resonate and it had to hold up and it couldn't, we couldn't fake it. Mm. And let's even, because I think one of the things is, you know, going into Sundance, I remember Eric Cohen telling me about, about the film and he's saying, well, it, it's Casey Affleck in, in a sheet. And I think that's kind of at the heart of this also, is yeah. this element of, well, that sounds a little bit Dumb. Silly. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, but it, I, I have to, in kind of watching it last night, I was happy that there was a couple laughs too, because I think there is this, in that ghost image, there is a little bit of a fun, there is a little bit Absolutely. of being able to laugh at yourself. It's, it's an image that inherently amuses me. Like, that's the reason I went for it at the beginning, was because I thought it was funny. And I like the idea of taking something that was inherently funny and finding some degree of gravity in it, but that doesn't negate the inherent funniness of it. And as we were shooting it, we initially leaned far, you know, leaned into that humor to a much greater degree. And over the course of editing and, and, and in production itself, we ironed that out a little bit to try to find the right tonal balance, but there's still, it's still there. And there are parts of the movie where I hope people are laughing. Even when he sits up and walks out of the hospital for the first time, it's okay to laugh there because even though there's like very like heavy music playing and it's very, uh, you know, we, we almost scored it like a horror movie at that point, it's still funny. Like it's a funny image and that's, that's okay. Because there's also, and let's just even talk about this because I think sometimes that idea and holding that line between the two is really, is really important. And I think even just the costume itself is so key here, right? Yeah. Because you are referencing that kid 
sheet over ghost mm -hmm. um, Halloween costume, but you know, knowing a little bit of costuming myself, that thing is elegant, and it, it, it can reference that, but it also allows him to move. Mm -hmm. It also is, it is able to evoke something, and you gotta nail that part of it, right? It's absolutely true. I mean, the costume was probably the biggest challenge on the whole film. First, it was actually manufacturing it and figuring out how to actually physically make the ghost in our heads a physical three-dimensional reality, and then, Performing under it was an entire learning process as well, and then shooting it, like how to fit that ghost in a frame was a bigger challenge than we expected because it's such a dominant shape and it's so bright and it just overwhelms any image that it's in if you film it the wrong way. So we were often like, we would set up our camera and we'd find the shot and then the ghost would enter the frame and we would realize that the shot was all wrong. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it, was, it was tough, and the costume itself was indeed like a feat of mechanical engineering. It was definitely, you know, to achieve something that looks so naive and simple required an immense amount of work. Yeah. And there's an element here, and this is my, I, I don't, I love the film, and uh, Casey Havoc is a wonderful performer. There is an element, though. He's not We're not necessarily getting a performance underneath no. that from him, are we? You're not. No. And that's something we realized within the first week of shooting. Was so you originally thought I originally that, thought that, that this is going to need Casey's cadence, his movement. Yes. You're going to sense him underneath there. And really, it could have been me because I'm like... 100%. It was, it was an interesting discovery because I thought that this would be a chance for Casey to do a lot of physical acting and to... Um, really emote through body language and I wanted audiences to be able to recognize his physical traits underneath that sheet and we started off doing that. Because he does have such an interesting movement and I think we saw that in Manchester too. Totally. Where um, that element that he emotes of um, I don't know what it is. There's an internal aspect of this kind of doubt. You can feel like a weight of his shoulders. You do. Like he slumps, it, he it, shuffles, yeah. he has a very um, like something's eating him from inside out. Like yeah. that's that, that and it's that's in there. his physicality. It's in his physicality, yeah. and and you could see that under the sheet. And somehow the sheet made it more pronounced and made it more exaggerated, and it made the sheet cease to function instantly because it just became an actor wearing a sheet as opposed to being a a character in the movie that was supposed to be to at least some degree supernatural and ethereal and haunting and, and not quite human. And so the early stuff that we shot with him in the sheet, just we, we reshot later on because it just was too human. And it just felt like performance art, less than, it, it didn't feel like a movie. And so that was, a, that was an interesting learning curve, realizing we needed to remove the performance from underneath that sheet and distill it down to a series of very, very specific movements. And the way I describe it is basically he had to, he was operating a puppet that he was wearing. It was like puppeteering. Mm -hmm. And it was done in concert with the costume team who for any shot that wasn't a full body shot would be crouched down at his feet, holding the folds of the sheet and moving it with him so that he would, so it wouldn't go askew. And as you pointed out, anybody could have been under that at that point, which made it easy to do pickups and reshoots later on when he was unavailable. But he stayed. He, well, you know, he wanted to do it. He yeah. wanted to be under it every single day. And when we did have to do some photography without him and he, uh, our art director wore it, he was, he was bummed. <laughs> like, he felt like his role had been, uh, been handed over to somebody else. I think there's that aspect of this that I think because 
um, Casey's in it and Rooney Mara's in it, um, two, two known, and they were in, they were yeah. in your, your, your um, Ain't Your Body Saves, or Ain't Them Body Saves. I think when people like that are attached, people assume a certain size of production. And the sense that I get, and I, I talked to uh, Andrew a little bit, uh, your DP, my sense of this is that you've been a wonderful collaborator to other people. You've edited a lot of films. A lot of people have talked about how wonderful and giving you've been to their films. And my sense is that this really is you and some very talented friends, including Casey and mm -hmm. Rooney, getting together in a small house and making this movie. Yep. Even though, I mean, some of the level of craft and, and who some of your friends are, but that really is this. This is something where and we'll start with Casey and Rooney. This is really people coming down and, hey, let's make a movie with David for that's like exactly. two, three weeks. That's exactly what it was. It was that, you know, we didn't get into the business of it. We did eventually have to, but there wasn't like, you know, the offer made to agents or anything like that. I just called them both and said, hey, I'm making this weird thing in Texas. Do you want to come hang out? And they both said yes. Rooney read the script and we talked about it and she, you know, had some, you know, questions and you know, concerns over whether it would actually be a feature-length film, but nonetheless, she thought it was wonderful and was. Really you had those questions too, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, and but you know, I'd never let her know that I had those questions <laughs> at that point. I was like, yes, this will absolutely be a feature <laughs> film, and um, and then Casey, I I don't want to put you know, I don't want to presuppose anything, but I'm pretty sure he never even read the script until he got to town. He knew that I sent him pictures of the costume. He understood the concept of it, but. He was just down to hang out. He just wanted to come hang out, make something little. He loves the idea of making small movies like that. And uh, they both were just down for the cause. And it really was, you know, one of the, the, the one sort of ultimatum I made going into this was that I wanted to keep it as small as could be and only work with friends. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did. It really was a, a really tight family unit that made this movie. And, and that's what made it makeable you know I think if we had tried to just bring in anyone from the outside and try to like you know make it on any other level it wouldn't have been the same nor would it have really worked and you know Pete's is a great movie I think it's very much your movie I'm not trying to say totally. it. I, yeah. don't, I don't think this is a one for them one for me yeah. type thing but I do imagine that there is an element of Pete's um, and I, I, I'm guessing that Casey and Rooney have dealt with this on their own level as well it's an enormous operation. The, 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 the amount of departments, the amount of mm -hmm. things that you're dealing with. And so there is this element of, and not, it's still hard work, but this element of getting together with a small group of friends and making a film maybe like how things were for you five years ago or something like that. For a lot of people, not just yourself, but I think that's, there's like, there's a freedom in yeah, that, right? It, it, there definitely is. I mean, the big movies are big for a reason and they need it. And that's great. They need that army. But it does get overwhelming at times and, and it can slow you down. I mean, that's, I think, the big cliche that every director who makes those movies uh, uh, you know, holds true is that it slows you down. And it would be great if you could just keep you know, moving quickly and, and getting things in the can and, and exploring. And so by doing something this stripped down and by making it so you know, intimately and with such a small, tightly knit group of friends, we were able to do more and to execute more and to try more things and to go exploring. And that's not to say that we didn't have a plan and we weren't sticking to it, but we certainly left ourselves room to just go down avenues we wouldn't have been able to go on on a movie like Pete's Dragon just because there wouldn't have been time. My understanding is that this you know, the idea, 
one of the early premises of this is, and I guess actually, I guess now that it kind of just delivered more in the end, but this is a couple and um, they're renting this house and he doesn't want to move on. He has an attachment to this house and, and she's ready. She's, and she's having trouble uh, kind of figuring out what the rationale yeah. is here and knows that she's dealing with something emotional, not, not rational. My understanding is kind of the premise of this is something from you and your wife and this yes. concept of, of home and a house is that, it, and I'm not looking to delve into the personal here, but I think there's an element here that also goes into this idea of the enormity of time in life. I'm just wondering if you can make a connection between like something that's practical that was is happening or in finite in your kind of personal life and that touching upon something kind of bigger, <laughs> which this movie is. I mean, yeah, I probably could, I probably could find the delineation between the two if I if I thought about it for a second. I I do think like, I I find those connective tissues in everything. And I can take the tiniest, most infinitesimal event in my life and blow it into cosmic proportions very quickly because I do think big picture way too much. And I remember once wanting to buy a vintage movie poster on eBay and, and uh, thinking how nice it would look in our living room and then thinking, well, I, you know, I shouldn't really spend the money on this because in 200 years I'm going to be dead and in a million years after that the poster's not going to exist anymore, so what's the point? And like, this is the dumbest, that is a dumb way to think about life, but it kept me from buying that poster at that time because I was like, nothing really matters. <laughs> this poster doesn't matter. And I've tried to actually confront myself on those issues and start doing things that matter more in the moment because I feel like that's a huge flaw. But anyway, that's, that's a, a side note to the fact that yes, this began in this very personal way and in my attempts to rationalize the issues that were at the heart of this disagreement my wife and I were having, I made this leap to a giant existential crisis. And, and the thing about it, I watched it again this week, I said, and, 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 I, and, and kind of watching it more analytically the second time, this is about time. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I loved about this is that this opening up until the big turning point, and I don't know if people, that's a spoiler or not, but we feel time. You're extending, we're, mm -hmm. we're holding shots for a long period of time, we're being with them. And then it becomes more elliptical. The, the scenes where when the other family moves into the yeah. house, the, it's, it's wonderfully, wonderfully done the way that like time kind of... Starts to flow. Starts to yeah. flow. And then there's these huge time cuts. Yeah. And literally eternity. Yeah. So, and, and, this, and, that, and the way that you kind of capture that in the editing. And I'm wondering how much of that is something with a film like this, which you're figuring out and you're trying to figure out if this is a feature, you're trying to figure out, is that something that you discover in putting it together? Is that a concept that you had and you're very deliberately shooting it in a certain way? In terms of like, because I know you have a huge editing background. Yeah. It, was, it was largely deliberate, I have to say. Like most of that was in the script. And the one thing that wasn't was some of the, the style that we approached those sequences in photographically. So when this family moves in after um, Rooney has left the house, that was a you know, we kind of were shooting in sequence, and so we'd reached that point in the shoot, and we had spent so much time with a camera that was locked off for very long periods of time, or moving on a dolly very slowly. These long, long shots that held for a great length of time, we just felt it was time to 
change gears and, and let the, the language of the film evolve. And because that sequence is the first one where time starts to slip by, we decided to just be much more fluid and let the camera just sort of um, float around the space as opposed to being locked off or being so rigidly, you know, formalist in his approach. And, and that was very conducive to the way time starts to flow in that sequence. And then that happened again in the party. We, we changed our approach again and the film gets much cuttier and the, the editing gets much more you know, pronounced and, and not rapid this, fire. You feel this fleeting, as they're having a good time, you yeah. feel this, and Will Elm's giving that speech, you feel this like fleetingness and Completely. this ephemeral aspect of time. But, but aside from how we shot it, most of that was planned out in the script and the cuts and the time jumps and all of that was very, um, was very premeditated and and even the way the first half of the movie was incredibly slow and the last half is much more fluid, that was all in the script as well. And I, I would even include running times for certain scenes in the script just so people reading the script would know, here's how this is going to function. Like, this shot will hold for five minutes. That was like, you know, written into the script. Just whether or not it needed to in the, in the, at, the, in the, at the end of the day, I wanted people reading it to understand the type of movie this was going to be and how it would change as it went through uh, its various stages. You were an editor on Shane Carruth's Upstream Color. Um, uh, his movies, he's Mr. Time. Like he's yeah. Mr. And, and my understanding is that he came down and helped you in a unique way. On the, I think probably in discussing some of the things that we're discussing right now, right? It was a little bit of that, but you know, more so, he was approaching things from a very technical level. And well, a very, first of all, what did he do? Because I don't know the people know. What while he did. we were shooting the movie, he was just putting the footage together for us, so we could see and edit as we were shooting, which I find to be immensely helpful. And I wish that I was Steven Soderbergh and could just could do it myself, but I never have the headspace at the end of the day to do that. So he was putting it together for us. And he was on set a couple days as well, just you know, hanging out and gave me some great ideas for some, some, some shots and ways to handle certain, certain scenes. And they weren't the ones people expect. Like they weren't like, you know, Rooney leaving the house three times. That was, not, that was in the script already. But like he thought like that we really needed a camera in the wall when he's scratching at the wall. And, and, and he's, like, he's like, you need that shot. And he was right, we needed that shot. <laughs> and we got that. And, uh, built a special, special, special rig just for that. And um, he, because as you say, he does mess with temporality in his movies, he took what was a very rigid script and ignored it as he was putting the footage together and just started to mess with the sequencing of events and really just tried to make something that flowed in a, in a cinematic fashion. And that had to that, be freeing to have someone do that with your stuff. It was great. You, even if you didn't keep it. Yeah, it was great. It was great to see how it might work. And, and it really broke me out of the concept that this movie need to be, needed to be 100% rigid in its approach to time. Because even though it's about time itself, and time is, you know, moving forwards and backwards in time is an actual literal plot part of the plot, part of the, part of the plot I, was, I didn't really think this movie could get flexible in the way that it ultimately did. And as he was putting stuff together, he was like, well, of course it can. This is a movie. This is cinema. People are going to know what your intent is when you, you know, jump backwards and forwards in time because they understand how movies work. So don't be worried about it. And that was a great, a greatly liberating uh, discovery that he helped us find. And I'm sure he wouldn't even take credit for that, but he did. He, that's what he did. 
Another one of your great collaborations is with your composer, Daniel Hart. Um, and I, I love the stuff he does for you. And I, it was fun to see you guys also do something different with Pete, too, yeah. which is great. But this one, his work, you guys, the, the, the combination of your work always comes so nice. But with these things that we're talking about, the temporality, this element, I, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but it feels like his work in particular in this film played such a huge story yeah. role. And I mean, it's amazing, amazing work. But I'm wondering how that, is this something because you guys have collaborated before, he's working on this as you're working, or is this really a, a traditional, like, a post thing? Because the reason I bring this up is because it feels to me like some of the language of this film was almost dependent on the music. Like you, I can almost see you thinking of this in terms of Daniel's music and how some of these things play, because there is a silent film element to this film. For sure, like we definitely knew the music would, would be a big part of this one, more so than in some of the other films, because so much of it is dialogue free and, and you know there are times and places where it's great to just have sound design carry that load but other times we needed music to to guide us forward and it changes in every movie depending on what Daniel's doing in this case he was very busy on another score while we were in the early stages of uh, post-production and so he saw footage he saw rough assemblies but he didn't really get to start working on it until two months before Sundance and so at that point, the movie was pretty much in its final shape. But one of the things I always do is I always cut movies without Tim score first, just to see if I can find this internal rhythm. Oh, okay. And, and I hate using Tim score because it, it, you start to you start conform adapting, your movie you to start something that you're not going to yeah, use. That beat. So I think at this point, I know to a certain extent what I want, but I also know what he'll be providing, even if I don't literally know what that will be. I, we, I think we are in sync enough that I'm able to cut a movie to a, a non-existent rhythm and he's able to come in and find that rhythm and write music for it. So in this case, he started writing music and sending it to us like in November. And the first track I think I had some notes on and the second track that he sent I had a couple more notes on and then after that nothing needed to be adjusted. It was just like he would send us music, it would fit perfectly and that continued from, you know, halfway through the movie to the end of the movie and it just like would slot in just right and it was amazing to watch that happen and watch the movie transform and be elevated to the next level because we knew it would get there but at that point we didn't know how and all of a sudden we were watching these scenes that we were very familiar with from the sound mix and the DI and seeing them come to life in this new way and it was a truly it was a really amazing experience and once again a um, a reminder of why I need Daniel Hart in my life. And we don't, I don't have time to talk about this one, but I mean, also one thing I want to note is his band Dark has Red. that song, um, I Get Overwhelmed, yeah. which I have been listening to. I found it on Spotify. I've been listening to it nonstop this week. And that also is something that plays a huge story role. Yes. Like, that plays a huge piece in it, too. So it's like even beyond the score. Um, you know, as, as when talking to Andrew, I was reminded of something. You know, back when television came in and, and Hollywood started going widescreen, all those filmmakers that had been making four by three were like, what the fuck do we do with this? Yeah. And, you know, it's like, it's good for filming funerals, I think is what Fritz yeah. likes. And I say that because we're, we now live in such a world, uh, you know, people our age, we've always lived in a widescreen yeah. world. And it was interesting talking to Andrew, because this movie you, you saw in four by three, something you've always wanted to do, but that it was an adjustment, almost in that same way that they had to adjust. Like, it was a little bit more difficult, wasn't it, to... It was really hard. <laughs> in a way, I imagine you didn't anticipate, no, right? I, I thought that it would come naturally. It's just like, oh, it's a square. We just reframe things. Yeah. But 
our minds are so trained to think in rectangles at this point as filmmakers that to adjust to that frame, at least for me, was an incredible challenge. And, and it was uncomfortable. Like I kept thinking that we were shooting it wrong because naturally I just want to stretch things out into a, into a widescreen. And so to figure out how to make these compositions function effectively in this aspect ratio required not just a lot of like planning and, and, and figuring it out on the day, but a lot of reshooting. Again, because there were, you know, the first couple days of production, I think we shot things wrong. And I wanted to make sure we is were getting it, Is it lens right. choice? Is it proximity? It's is both. It, it's, it's, it's everything. And also where the actor is in the frame and the degree that, to which a close-up changes. You know, that you can't shoot a close-up the same way. And it's really, it's remarkable how much, you know, how much goes into that. I mean, it shouldn't be such a surprise, but, but it really is. Like, you just, you just don't anticipate how every little detail plays differently when you're using that aspect ratio and how you have to think about space in a different capacity. So I would love to make another film in that aspect ratio now that I've done it once, and who knows when that will be, but it really is a, it's a beautiful ratio, but it was a definite uh, a learning curve that we had to adjust to. Um, David Lowry, your movie opens up on July 7th. People should really, really see this one. It's a special movie. Uh, and you just finished shooting, right? You just finished shooting a new one? Yeah, we just finished shooting a movie called Old Man the Gun with Robert Redford that had been in development since before Pete's Dragon. Is it true it's his last film? He says it is. He also said once before that he was done with directing, but now I know he wants to direct again. So, I, you know, his, his, his uh, mood may change in a, in a year or two, but right now he's saying it's his last film, and if it is, I hope, we, I hope we're sending him off well. And it's a little lighter, right? It's, it's lighter, but it also, like, I wanted to make a movie that really was a, a testament to Redford's legacy in a way, and also... Oh, so you wrote it for him in mind? I wrote it with him in mind. I mean, he's the one that hired me to develop it, and so it's much lighter, it's more fun. It also... One of my favorite movies is Downhill Racer, so I wanted to do something that sort of fit into that ethos of, 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 of his career. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know, I'm really excited to see how it turns out. It could be weird, it could be different. It's definitely 100% different <laughs> than a ghost story, but I like going in different directions, so it's great. David, thank you so much. Really appreciate the time. Thank you. Best of luck with the movie.